Well, good morning to everyone. We're we're at a good part of Ezekiel because uh, we're going to finish this this unit we've been in for some time. But it's you know every chapter really has something rich there. But it's a unit that runs from twelve to nineteen, and and it's a unit that um, you know as some preachers will say it'll preach because it really uh, so well speaks to um, our hard attitudes uh, today. But the hard attitude of the people at the time of, of Israel back, you know, 2,500 years ago was that um, Ezekiel is making this stuff up. And these these prophecies, he said, these things he said would happen really are not going to happen. Um, and instead, there were false prophets that are dealt with in chapter 13 that are saying everything's good. Everything's going to be OK. And, you know, the things you'd expect to hear today, maybe God is love. He, he'd never he'd never hold anybody accountable for sin, that sort of thing. And and so the the chapter as a whole is dealing with that. And once you see that, that's kind of the, the theme, um, a hard attitude that, despite very explicit, um, uh, the, you know, um, statements and, and sermons from from Ezekiel, they're just living in denial, as we would say, that their sin is going to be dealt with. And and so it ends in a place that, that that shouldn't surprise us. It ends in chapter 19 with what we would call a, a lament or a dirge. It's the first of five laments or dirges uh, in in the book of Ezekiel. And it, it basically ends in a lament. You usually have the lament after the person, or in this case, the city has died. But this lament will happen before uh, the city dies. And it's, it's, it's to, to be as emphatic as God can possibly be through the prophet um, that Jerusalem will, will fall. Uh, but we're up to chapter 18. Uh, last time we talked about the parable of the eagles in 17 and, and also the a very uh, extensive parable of, of the harlot in, in uh, chapter 16. But uh, parable of the eagles dealt with... Um, you know, uh, both both Egypt and and it would seem with with um, Israel as is an eagle, but there's this very fascinating chapter before the dirge, before the lament, where where God deals with personal responsibility and 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 I, maybe I'm just not remembering, but I know I've heard some sermons in the past um, on this issue, and I don't know that I've heard one that, that incorporated the material in Ezekiel 18. We know that God says some things in a couple of places in the in the Torah about visiting the sins of the of the father onto the children that that sort of thing, and um, it's it's that issue that that he's dealing with because there's a, a proverb going around. We've seen these proverbs earlier where where Ezekiel dealt with proverbs things that reflect the common beliefs of the people that are wrong. And he deals with this proverb, and the proverb is basically that God is unjust because if he were to bring judgment, he would be bringing judgment on the children for the sins of the parents. Um, when I've heard these sermons in the past, again, about some verses in back in the Torah, uh, it, it was to, to, you know, to argue that God does not do that, that God does not, uh, punish the children for what the parents have done, and and I think that's true, uh, by the way. Um, but I, I I do I just like I said I don't remember people bringing in Ezekiel eighteen and Ezekiel eighteen directly addresses that question: Does God um, punish uh, the children for what the parents have done? 
because he's being accused of that. And, I, and I've heard people actually teach that that's what the Bible does say. That is, there are folks who hold that God punishes the children for what the parents have done. Um, and so he's going to say, I don't do that. And he does it in an interesting way. Um, but I will say, as we embark on this and you think about everything up to this point, it is not possible for this judgment to fall on Jerusalem uh, for what the parents have done without it impacting the children, right? It's not possible uh, for it not to impact them. Um, another way of, of, of saying that is that um, sin, while while God will not punish your, your children, your grandchildren for what you do, um, your sins can uh, impact them. And I, and I, I think a lot of times, when we're we're doing these things, when people engage in in certain conduct, they think in their minds, even if they they think it's wrong, they don't they don't see how it would impact other people, and especially how it might impact um, the the children. So let's look at a little of this, and and then think about that question that uh, if if it's the true the truth, as as Ezekiel will say, that God does not uh, punish the children for the parents' sin. Uh, how do we explain um, what happens when Jerusalem uh, is destroyed and the children are impacted? So we'll, we'll come back to that. But he says, and in, 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 one other thing, just and I've mentioned this a few times before, just as a time marker, when you get to chapter twenty, that's we know it's it's we know chapter twenty begins a new unit of thought because it has a new time marker in the first verse. The last time marker we saw was in chapter 8, verse 1, and it put it at about 592 B.C. And when you get to chapter 20, verse 1, it puts it in 591, assuming, and it is an assumption, but it it, it seems to fit um, the pattern of this book and, and some of the other prophets at the time to to write, you know, chronologically. Uh, we're we're in we're in 591 BC. Uh, I'm sorry, 592. Uh, when we're in when we're reading chapter 17, 18, 19, if we're in 592, we know as a historical fact um, that the city falls around 587, 586. It doesn't just fall in a day. I mean, it's under siege for a long time. So we're about five years out. When, when these people are in denial that the city could fall, it's it's. Um, you know, it's that it's that idea that if it doesn't happen the next day, then it's not going to happen. It's like the scoffers in 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 Second Peter. Um, they're only about five years out. This really is, even just from a human perspective, it's right on the horizon. So um, listen to the proverb. This is what the people believe. Um, he, the word of the Lord came to me, verse one of chapter eighteen. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? So we know that. It's a, a truism about that they, you know, that they're passing around about the, the nation of Israel that's going to fall in five years because we're looking back and we know we know what happens. The fathers eat the sour grapes. That's a, the metaphor for the sin. Uh, but the children's uh, teeth are set on edge. Uh, the, the, the people seem to think that if they're suffering, they're suffering for what the parents did and and not necessarily meaning that somebody's saying it wasn't me it was my father but it's it's the generation before them they're the ones that you know that that uh that did these things if there's going to be a judgment you know god's unjust because it's not us that have done it 
which means that they're in total denial of their own personal sin uh, with this idolatry that Ezekiel has been calling out repeatedly. The way God deals with this is he provides three hypotheticals. And in each hypothetical, he answers the question of, um, you know, is, you know, basically who deserves the punishment and, and what God will will do. So uh, we'll see the three hypotheticals. But verse three, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord. So, you know, Ezekiel's talking, but it's God's words here. You will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the father is like the life of the son. Both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. Uh, that's pretty That's pretty uh, stark. It's, it's not just that there's going to be uh, bad days ahead or a rough patch. He's, he's going to kill them. That's what's going to happen when the city falls. But he's also being very specific. It's, it, you know, this is not the children paying for their parents' sin. Uh, this is people paying for their own sin. And in the temporal sense that, you know, right, we're not talking about whether they're going to heaven, but the temporal sense. And so you, you, you have a hypothetical person in verse five, a second hypothetical person in verse 10, and a third one starting in verse 14. And, and the hypotheticals um, are first just a righteous man who's living righteously. Uh, second, um, a, a righteous man who has a violent son, you know, a, a wicked son. And the third hypothetical is a violent father, a bad father, but with a righteous son. Uh, and so those are the the three uh, hypotheticals. And if you if you look at a, at a high level where these end, the first hypothetical verses five to nine, and and I highlighted these words in my Bible. Uh, the last verse of that little paragraph says he will certainly live. The second hypothetical verses ten to thirteen. Again, I highlighted the last from the last uh, verse. He will not live. And then the third one. Uh, chapter or verses 14 to 17 he will certainly live so you can see how these hypotheticals will work um, these these I you know I think when you read this it, it doesn't seem like a surprise to us so it's it's hard maybe to put ourselves in the in the mindset of of these people at the time that that they would think that God would punish children for what their parents did but in any event verse 5 Suppose a man, so it's hypothetical, suppose a man is righteous and he does what is just and right. And then he gives some examples that are very specific that that in themselves are, are telling because in an indirect way, he's saying to these, these people uh, and, and of the people back in Israel, if you want to live, this is how you ought to be. Uh, he does not eat at the mountain shrines okay, that have been set up for the idolatrous practices. He doesn't look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife, okay, adultery right out of the big, the big ten. He doesn't approach a woman during her menstrual impurity. There's a, a verse back in Leviticus that prohibited that. Um, he does not oppress anyone but returns his collateral to the debtor. Well, what's that about? Uh, he doesn't oppress anyone, but gives the collateral back to the debtor. I was with him, but this part doesn't make sense, right? Because this is just business. 
you re recognize what the what the what 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 is the sin here? Okay. Um, you you could seems you, like it's covetousness. Yeah. Well, and 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 if because he's whoever it is is merciful, mm -hmm. and since he the debtor had to put up collateral for a mm -hmm. loan, um, he's righteous in what he does with yes. the person who owed him money. Exactly. Exactly. And I asked the question in a weird way. What this is? The, the sin okay. would the sin would be not giving the collateral back, but he does. In other words, he's he's righteous. He, yeah, he's righteous. He's loaned uh, some some money to somebody, and he's not taking advantage of them, and, and he's given the collateral back. And and there were there were strict limitations on your ability. Um, to loan money uh, and and to charge interest and and then there were even things you know in the law about if if you had somebody's land eventually you had to give it back to them. Um, he doesn't commit uh, robbery, so he's not stealing things from people. He gives his bread to the hungry. We talked about this before, I think last last week that, um, and, and it's just a, a a good reminder that we really have a pattern throughout the Bible of of God being very concerned about the poor and the vulnerable and righteous people, both here in Ezekiel 18 uh, and in, say, James 1, taking care of the, 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 the widows and the orphans, righteous people do what they can do um, for the poor and the vulnerable. And so he does that. He gives his bread to the hungry. Um, that sounds like a man we, we meet um uh, Earlier in in the earlier in the history, right? Thing, yeah, Ruth, uh, in the time of Judges, um, right? Boaz does that. Boaz is this kind of guy. This guy, we're 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 looking at a man that's described very much like you'd expect of of Boaz, who um, would provide bread to the to the hungry. Um, he covers the naked with clothing. Um, what a fascinating thing. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a verse far north of this one. Just 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 one. I think I referenced it last week. One we we know about, but um, the um, you know in the book of James, in chapter two, when this disputed verse that we're not going to deal with right now. I think we've dealt with that before. But the disputed verse in two fourteen. What what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith? Um, but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the faith he, he has in mind contextually is believing God's word, and in particular his word, that you should uh, love one another. And, you know, it's great that you believe that. You've accepted that as the truth that Jesus Christ taught, but do you do you live it? And so he gives the example in verse 15, if a brother or sister or is without clothes or lacks daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, the clothes and the food. What good is it? All right. You stand before Jesus and give an account of yourself at the Bema. Uh, it's it's not going to be just what was in your head, but what you actually um, you did. And so here, I mean, it's it's it's, you know, whether James had this in mind or not, I wouldn't go that far. But it's a it's a common thing that comes up in the Old Testament, the idea that righteous people um, will provide uh, uh, food and clothes, you know, within their, you know, what God provided to them. If, if they have a, an opportunity to help someone who's who's poor, 
And, and it's, it's right here in Ezekiel 18. He gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. It is the James 2 example. Um, these kind of things are, are important to us, uh, both because the fact that God says it in both places tells us this is really important. And um, uh, we can all find different ways within, within our means and our opportunity uh, to, to help people that are in need. And, um, um, you, you know, you just do the opportunities there. You, and you, you, the math in your mind should be, can, can, can I do this? This person has a genuine need. Can I meet it? Um, it it's, 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 it's telling that it occurs multiple times, but it's also a consistency. That is this whole idea that somehow the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. Now, that's just nonsense. You look at this, you know, like this is the same person talking, the same person um, hundreds of years apart saying, look, righteous people um, do righteous things. John says that in First John. They do righteous things and 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 they give they give bread and, and clothing. So um, he doesn't lend at an interest or for profit. There was a restriction on uh, loaning money uh, in, in um, you know, the, in, in a translation may use the word usury, U-S-U-R-Y in the, in the legal field. Uh, usury is usually uh, refers to charging interest that is too high. Uh, there are legal limits uh, depending on the state you're in about charging interest that's too high. It's kind of a recognition that, um, that there, 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 there's, there's going too far, right, with it. So God had very strict restrictions, though, on, on charging interest. So He doesn't lend money at an interest. He is willing to help somebody, and, and, and it, no, no, there's nothing in it for Him from the standpoint of making money. He's not even going to earn interest on, on the loan. Um, and He says He, He keeps His hand from injustice. And carries out true justice between men. Um, the the poor and vulnerable are most likely to be taken uh, advantage of, uh, including in the courts. And um, that hasn't that hasn't uh, changed. And you know we like to think that you know maybe other places are more corrupt than the United States, but we have corruption here. Um, but I, I I can relate. You know. When, when I had litigation, and, and just as an example, you know, like this is not a, a, a new thing, but this has gone on for thousands of years. Um, when I had litigation in, in Mexico, uh, and, and we, we represented a, like a resort in Playa del Carmen, uh, the other side just had the police come and arrest the, the people that, that, that managed the, the resort uh, because you can just buy your justice. I mean, that's what happened. Um, that happens in the United States, too, of course. And, and it happened in the ancient world. And um, God has always had a very strong view on uh, people who corrupt uh, justice. Uh, Jesus would even tell a parable about an unjust judge, you know, and a, and a lady that's begging him for something she she needs. So, um, the idea that there should be justice and not not injustice, not corruption, maybe a better word we, we could think of. Um, God doesn't approve of those things. And a righteous man um, will not uh, promote uh, injustice, you know. And um, 
I mean, just just this. Uh, I've I've started reading a book. I guess a week ago. Uh, much of the information there um, for someone who lived it what took place during the Nixon administration during Watergate, but it starts a little earlier than that. And you know, it's 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 frankly somewhat astounding that those things can happen, but like they they do. That is a a corruption, um, and and um, and with with regard to Ch Charles Colson, who was a part of that, wrote that book um, shortly before. I mean, the Watergate thing had started, but it wasn't in stride yet. He he became a Christian, and it's it's a fascinating thing. I I highly recommend the book. I'm not done with it yet, but I, I found it fascinating. It's called Born Again. It's it was a, a book written a long time ago, but but it was his becoming a Christian that really convinced him that a lot of the things that he did were were were, were wrong. And 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 by his account, the actual Watergate stuff, knowing ahead of time that there was going to be a you know a bungled burglary at the at the Watergate apartments, he said he didn't know about that. But he recounted a lot of things he did that were wrong. And and here's the the clincher: um, he had um, published published um, false newspaper articles to smear. Um, another man's public uh image uh and and it worked and, and it and it hurt that man deeply because the accusation was something he had had really not only not done no one ever else had accused him of it and when he became a christian um as hard as it was he went back to that man uh and to his wife who was very hurt by the what had been published and he apologized i found that fascinating um but you you know you see corruption in the highest levels. But when someone is a as a Christian, um, we you know we really ought to have a different view. And in, in the we, we couldn't we can't say it's just politics, it's just business. Um, and it, it was it was refreshing just to to read how that that changed very rapidly changed his his whole outlook on life. But but to see that he even tried to go back to people he had wronged in the past and uh and make it good um that is what righteous people do they're not perfect but when they're aware that they've harmed somebody else um even inadvertently but it's it's their fault um they make amends they apologize sometimes they um you know uh make restitution you've harmed someone in a way that costs them money this is the picture of this righteous guy so uh at the end of this um, it, you know, he, he, he summarizes saying this man follows my statutes, keeps my ordinances, acting faithfully. Such a person is righteous. Uh, he'll certainly live. He's talking about when the city falls. Any, any thoughts or comments so far? This is, this is the picture of the person God wants us to be as Christians. This isn't what we have to do to be a Christian. It's what as Christians, we ought to be trying to do to be righteous like this in our, in 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 what we do, a, a doer of the word and not a hearer only. But any any comments or thoughts? Yeah, and in, in scripture, the assumption is that if you're borrowing money, you're poor. Mm, yeah, why there's those um, guidelines against charging interest, and because you would be a taking advantage of the poor. 
in the in our modern Western society, we've normalized debt. And I think that's a very bad thing. In the New Testament, it says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And people kind of skip over that, but owe nothing to anyone. I don't think we should be in debt and I don't think we should be borrowing money. And if you've ever listened to Dave Ramsey's radio show, mm-hmm. he gives many examples where people have taken that concept and said, you know what? I'm not going to get a mortgage. I'm going to save up enough money to buy my house outright. And the stories are like phenomenal that, you know, money comes to them out of nowhere, that they get a house for much less than they ever would have thought they would have paid for it. I mean, the Lord can get you these things without having to borrow money and and borrowing money too. You're really um, committing God to supplying you the payments to make those payments. And he that may not be his plan for you. So I think we we really ought to think our whole mindset behind borrowing money. Winnie actually, um, years ago, 2008, I was a senior executive at a corporation making a lot of money and I got laid off. So my income went to- And we had three houses. Yeah, and we had rental properties and everything. So, you know, she basically took money that- she had made in the stock market and we paid off our house. And that was like a revelation that, wait a minute, why do we have all these loans? Why did we borrow all this money? We and went on the plan ourselves. Yeah. We did it ourselves. Yeah. And then Judd wound up teaching it in the church. And so many people said their lives were changed. But, but we, we just decided we're going to pay off everything. And we're not going to have any debt. And I can't even tell you, You know, I'm an accountant. It kind of sounds strange for me to say, but I don't understand how we paid that much debt off that quickly. It almost seems like it was absolutely impossible. But the moment that we made that decision, everything just fell into place and we paid everything off. And we've had everything. We have not had one debt since like 2009 or 2010. There's, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot to be said for that, what you just said. I mean, it really is because, and I will say, you know, when I, when we bought our first house that, you know, that's, you know, we, we got a loan and looking back on it, it wasn't a very expensive house, but uh, if I had just disciplined my spending within a couple of years, I could have paid cash for that house. That, that's just a fact. Uh, but but the, the the thing about the debt that uh, of course here in the example is 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 using it to oppress the poor just like you said because they're the ones that need to borrow the money. But um, I have repeatedly seen it um, alter people's life path. Uh, is is an easy example. Someone I know that's um, now on the missionary field, but that plan got thwarted for years uh, after um, uh, obtaining a you know. A, training to be a missionary college to, you know, seminary type stuff and all that because of the student loan debt, you know, got to have that dealt with before they can go to the mission field. And, um, and, you know, and, and the, 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 the taking on debt is something that has, has harmed a lot of Christians who have a heart often to um, do more in terms of their finances for a church and ministry purposes and, and, and can't do it. Uh, and, uh, so it's, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things I think that Satan has cleverly used, um, to, to harm a lot of people, you know, it, it can be subtle, but to get in a, in a place where 
because of your debts, you're not able to do some things you might have otherwise done, including including ministry uh, in endeavor. So a lot to be said for it. It can shorten your lifespan, too. I don't know if you ever watch any um, like crime shows and oh. somebody commits suicide. A lot of times that's the question they ask. Was he in debt? And, you know, yeah. to that, my father actually committed suicide because he had taken on a lot of debt. That's why he did it, because he had a life insurance policy. He was in his 70s, a million-dollar life insurance policy, and it was a term policy. And, you know, when you're in your 70s and you got it in your early 50s, the payment was going up from, you know, like $100 a month to $9,000 a month. So he borrowed the $9,000, paid that last payment, and committed suicide because he had read the policy and it said, if you had it a certain amount of time, it still pays if you commit suicide. So it can shorten your life. Um, and it can really do some things. I, I heard a story of someone, this is crazy to me that got a seminary degree and started a church and decided that, you know, I'm, God wants me to, you know, be a pastor of this church. And he borrowed all kinds of money on credit cards to do it. And then it failed and he had like no other training and he had to like work in a gas station to try and pay off all that debt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and you're right. It, it, the, the, the bondage to debt, uh, Obviously, uh, it, it impacts relationships. It and and as you said, I mean, you said that about your father. It's it's a very sad tale. And um, but I've I've heard that story a number of times. And even um, where did I read this? Yes, um, I I just finished a it's an outstanding book. I highly recommend it. But it's so it's so long. Uh, the book's called Truman. It's about the life of, of Harry Truman. It won a Pulitzer in his history. Um, but as I recall, his wife, Bess, her father committed suicide, as I recall. So don't quote me, but that's my recollection. It stuck out to me and did it because of the debts uh, that he just was under the debts, as I recall. And it was just overwhelmed him and it was a big uh, you know, scandal. So so debts are debts are dangerous, and 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 I'm not, and, and you don't, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that it's a sin to to borrow money. I don't quite see it that way personally, but I think it's 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 highly dangerous. It's easy for it to get out of control, which is why um, I've I've heard I, I've lost count of the number of positive testimonies I have had from people who, uh, frankly, under you know listening to Dave Ramsey have freed themselves, have have put together, it took discipline, it took affirmative action, it took planning, but they, uh, he helped them, you know, through what he teaches, deal with their debts, and they just feel like they've been set free. So I'll, I'll say that. Um, as as uh, uh, a righteous person, uh, you know, especially under the law, they weren't supposed to be imposing uh, interest on their brothers and sisters if they loaned money. And the fact is, uh, in our corruption, uh, people want to uh, get get something out of everything, not just do something out of you know goodness or righteousness, and and God forbade it because uh, as as you know as Judd pointed out, if the people are borrowing money, it's usually because they're in, in dire need, 
And then here, this person who has lots of money that God gave him, that God gave him that money. Uh, they're then uh, taking advantage of the situation and, and perhaps even charging interest in a way, uh, today we call it credit cards, where uh, it's, it's nearly impossible for that person to ever pay back the debt. And so they become in bondage. And God says, this guy, this righteous guy, he doesn't do that. He will certainly live. Uh, next hypothetical, and this is where it gets really, really interesting, is this um, violent son of a righteous father. Now, our expectation, but I think it was quite a, a surprise to these people, is that, um, you know, if you've got a good a good man and he's got a bad son, and that happens, um, people say the acorn doesn't fall, fall from the free, but actually um, people make their own decisions when they become adults, and, and, and uh, it's very possible to no perfect parents, but to be godly parents, it is very possible to do that and and have children that for some period of time or perhaps for their whole life, um, you know, they they're not they're they're not godly. Um, the, the fact is, it's real easy to give our children our bad traits. I wish we could give them our faith. I wish it were that easy. We can try to model it. Uh, we can teach it and we should do those things. But there's no guarantee. And this is a person, a man that has a violent son uh, who sheds blood and, do, and, and, and does any of, of these things, though the father has done none of them. So a righteous man and a bad son. And that's that's just a um, just just things that happen. And God just says very, very simply, uh, he's going to hold the son responsible, not the father, which is what we expect. Uh, but it's probably not what they expected. Right. Uh, their expectation was uh, violent son. That's that's the, the father's at fault in this too. And, and God's actually saying, no, it's, it's very possible to have a righteous man, unrighteous son. So um, when the son eats at the mountain shrines, these are the things the righteous man in the first hypothetical did not do. He defiles his neighbor's wife. Uh, he oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He doesn't return the collateral. He does all the things that the righteous man did not do. In fact, the righteous man in the first hypothetical could be his father. Despite this splendid example, um, here he is, right? And we think of the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, you know, in the New Testament and Luke's gospel, same kind of thing. Um, God says he won't live. He will not live. Since he has committed these detestable acts, he will certainly die. His death will be his own fault. And this really gets at what these people, uh, it may well be that their uh, generation before them send, send it up and, and deserve punishment. But God says, I'm not getting you for what they did. I'm, I'm going to deal with you for what you've done. Third hypothetical, you've got a, a bad father and a good son. And uh, suppose you have, verse 14, a son who sees all the sins of his father but but he though he sees them he he's he's raised with that terrible example he doesn't do likewise um i i would say and i was going to mention this earlier and i said i'll come back to it the unfortunate thing is that when parents and especially dad sets a bad example uh so often the children um will, will do the same thing and and I, i've i've seen it over and over, and or, or or it will directly impact them in other ways. Now, of course, one way it can directly impact the children is if if the dad is is all bad, uh, you know, he may 
end up keeping his children in poverty because he won't hold down a job or, he, you know, he's always a drunk or whatever. But but there's just a number of ways um, I have watched when you know, dads dads tend to set the example for who their daughter may marry. And I've watched men who are just, you know, they're they're womanizers. They're they're just they're just bad and, and engaged in all kind of sexual sin. And, and they don't see how that's going to affect their children. They don't see how, you know, you're you're modeling uh, marriage for your children and your grandchildren. You're modeling relationship skills. And um, the um, within my own family, I, I remember as a, as a very young person, a particular family member who just was an alcoholic very severely. And, and at any family gathering, you know, he, he would be so drunk that he had to be driven home. It was just standard. And, and it never connected to me. And and now fast forward 40 years and that's that's his son. Uh, no genetics, by the way, his adoptive son, because uh, sometimes people say, oh, it's in the genes. You were made to be an alcoholic. And no. Uh, but but now he's a an alcoholic. And I mean, I mean, bad. So, so bad that this can't. Um, can't even function in, in daily life. So so uh, that doesn't mean it's dad's fault. But I tell you what, we have the ability to so uh, impact our children by our negative example. Uh, but at the end of the day, as adults, God's going to hold us responsible for our own actions. And uh, here's an example. Uh, and, and I've seen and heard many testimonies like this where dad really is bad and and a, and a child just makes a decision not to be like him. And um if you want a good historical example, you study the life of of um, of um, um, oh, General Robert E. Lee, uh, and I know controversial historical figure, but I like reading about history. Uh, his dad was bad, just just bad, and he's just an example of someone that you know didn't didn't have the traits that that dad had: the gambling, the alcoholism, cheating people, just all kinds of things. Um, you know, that's that's reality. And I've met a lot of people who have told me, you know, this or that happened growing up. It was so bad. And I just I resolved that I wouldn't put my children through that. Those people usually were were Christians who were able to see that the way the Bible's, you know, has a blueprint for for marriage and for child rearing wasn't what they had when they were children. And, and they wanted to not repeat that. Um and here's the example you have here. You know, the father does all these bad things. The the son is, it's not that he's hidden away from it. He sees it, but he's not going to be like uh, dad. He doesn't do those things. He's the righteous man. And so he will live. But as for his father in verse 18, he will die for his own iniquity because he practiced all these sins. Uh, but you may ask, why doesn't the son suffer punishment for the father's iniquity? Since the son has done what is just and right, carefully observing all my statutes, he will certainly live. That's verse 19. Uh, again, it seems simple to us, but this was obviously something of a revelation to, to the people. But verse 21 ends up with something where, um, oh, I should have said verse 20, I think is the key to the chapter. Um, the person who sins is the one who will die. And he's, you know, he's talking about what's going to happen when the city falls. Um, a son won't suffer punishment for the father's sin, and a father won't suffer punishment for the son's sin. The righteousness of a righteous person will be on him. The wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. That's the key to the whole chapter. And 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 when, if, if anyone were to tell you, oh, you know, God visits the sins on the children, 
The Bible does say that. Uh, but he is not saying that he punishes the children for what the the, the parents did. Rather, uh, it's the consequences. And that's the, that's the part that, that so often uh, when parents do um, things that, that are not right, they don't think about necessarily how that will impact the children or maybe even deceive themselves to think it won't. And, and it will. And it's not just things like my example of, you know, an alcoholic father runs a high risk of, of, of children uh, doing the same. Uh, that's true. But it can be other things. What if if you, you know, you you model a marriage where there's no conflict resolution? Someone I had as a, a professor uh, who's who went into psychology as a Christian counselor, but he, you know, grew up in a home where people didn't discuss disagreements and try to work through them. They just yelled at each other and said, biting, you know, biting um, vindictive words, threats, that kind of thing. Um, you pass those along too. I mean, those, that's, that's, that those things uh, often get passed along. And, and it's, I, I think it may be more common for that to get passed along than for this hypothetical where the children say, you know what? I saw it, I was there, but that's not that's not right. And that's the way in which the consequences and, and even the habits, um, you know, they can they can be passed on. But God has hope at the end of this chapter, verse 21. If the wicked person turns from all the sins he's committed, keeps all my statutes and does what's right, he'll live. As I said earlier, the dates around 592 BC, the city falls around 587. There's time right up till the end. There's time for somebody to turn from their sins uh, so that they will not fall under uh, the judgment and die when the when the city falls. And God goes on to say, and like in verse 23, that he doesn't take pleasure um, or, 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 you know, he doesn't take uh, any pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he does take pleasure when wicked people turn from their ways. Uh, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. Uh, verse 25, he calls out the people that say the Lord's way isn't fair. Now listen, house of Israel, is it my way that's unfair? Instead, isn't it your ways that are unfair? He turns it around on them. You know, I'm only holding people personally accountable for their actions. Um, I'm not holding people accountable for anyone else's actions, and yet you're accusing me of being unjust. You're the ones being unjust. And that includes these these things he's been talking about, oppressing the poor people, for example. Like, that's the things they do. They're the ones that are unjust. Um, verse 29, the house of Israel says the Lord's way isn't fair. I don't know if they actually said this, but it's their hard attitude. This is this is people who are are really, in, in, in many ways, at enmity with God. They, they disapprove of God, and their hard attitude is God isn't fair in the sense of, of just, he's not just, and we know God, God is just, um, and, and God turns it around, he says, isn't it your ways that in fact are unjust, and, and so therefore in verse 30, he's going to judge everybody according to his ways, a common a statement in the, in the scripture, and um, he admonishes them, exhorts them to repent and turn around. If as a nation they would have turned around he would have stopped the the, the 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 destruction of the city, and it wouldn't have happened. Uh, well, let's let's cover this this lament real quick. It's it's uh it's not a long chapter, and just kind of get the highlights of it. This is where the unit ends. 
you'll notice if you have a if you have a King James, you may not see it, but in a modern translation, um, chapter 19 is set off as is poetry. Uh, it has the shorter lines that that are you know written uh, in more in verse form, like a like a poem. Uh, Hebrew poems don't rhyme, but they they tend to um, they tend to uh, say something and then parallel it with a similar statement or sometimes contrast it. It's more like a rhyme of of idea. It's done for emphasis. It sometimes will bring in some figurative language, as this will. Um, to to make it vivid, uh, it's it's the reason we have so much poetry in in the scriptures. And Ezekiel is told to take up a lament for the princes of Israel. That's a common word, prince, that means king. We we tend to think of you know the, the royals in England or something like that when we hear prince, but this is um, a word for kings, rulers, the rulers of Israel, and and it's a lament for them. Except you know. They haven't all died yet, but it's lament for them and really a lament for the city. Uh, he asked the rhetorical question, what was your mother? What was she like? And and I, people have debated who the mother is. Uh, she's called a lioness, you know, a female lion. Of course, lionesses have cubs, have children. Um, I think it's a word for, um, I think the Israel is, is, the, is the mother and Israel's uh, cubs that are in view here are kings, and they've had a slate of bad ones. If you'll recall, they had a good one named Josiah who went off to battle and got killed. He was not supposed to go off to battle, but he was the one that had tore down the, the high places and was, was doing a cultural reform, but he was followed by a lot of bad kings. And this, this mother, the lioness, uh, she lay down among the lions. She reared her cubs among the young lions. It's just metaphorical language. Um, a lion is, is and they had lions in Israel in the old days back then. Uh, it's it's a picture of majesty, strength. Okay, it's This is not pejorative that she's called a lion. But it, it asked the question about what about her cubs? What what was the, the produce, the product of, of this lioness? And verse 3, she brought one of her cubs and he became a young lion. Uh, he grows up after he learned to tear the prey. He learns how to hunt. Uh, he devoured people. When the nations heard about him, he was caught in their pit. Then they led him away with hooks to the land of Egypt. It would be a little difficult to know exactly who she's talking, you know, who, who he's talking about until it tells you he got led away to Egypt. Uh, this is the King Jehoahaz. And, and the, the reader, the hearer of Ezekiel's words at that time would know this because it's recent it's recent history, like, 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 well, with young people, I couldn't do this, but most of the people on this line, if I say Watergate, like I mentioned earlier, I don't have to explain to you what that was. These people knew as soon as they heard these words, oh, okay, the king that, that got led away to, to Egypt, that's Jehoahaz. He reigned only three months and Pharaoh Necho II um, took him out and dragged him away and that's the picture of of being led away with hooks it's not a a pretty picture but he's being hauled off captive um and the next king was jehoiakim who doesn't seem to be mentioned because we're starting in verse five he's going to talk about jehoiakim so let me say those again because the names are similar verses three and four are jehoahaz uh, who who came to the throne right after Josiah. He's only there three months. Egypt takes him out, takes him captive. He skips over Jehoiakim, 
probably because he's focusing on uh, people who had a similar fate. Jehoahaz carried away captive. Jehoiakim, C-H-I-N on the end, gets taken away captive. And then Zedekiah, the current ruler, taken away captive as well. So they're all people who are dragged away. That's kind of the pattern, these, these young cubs being captured, hunted down, as it were. So verses uh, 5 through through um, through 9 seem to be about Jehoiakim. In its similar language, when she saw that she waited in vain, that her hope was lost, right? Why was her hope lost? She's the mother lion. Her cub from verse 4 had been uh, taken away. But she has other cubs. And, and she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. She's reared him to adulthood. Uh, he prowled among the lions, became a young lion after he learned to tear prey. This is imagery for him becoming a king, uh, for him coming to power as a king. Uh, he, he's a strong king for a time, although very short. He devastated their strongholds, destroyed their cities, verse 7. Um, the land and everything in it shuddered at the sound of his roaring. So it pictures him as a, a mighty lion. But then in verse 8, the nations from the surrounding provinces set out against him and they spread a net over him. So he's captured just like the prior king. And we know who it is because of verse 9. They put a wooden yoke on him with hooks and led him away to the king of Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king at the time Ezekiel is, is preaching. Uh, in fact, uh, he was imprisoned in Babylon probably because of he was continuing the rebellion of his father um who who you know uh and and uh that his father Jehoiakim uh, started and and we have uh, you know second kings 24 is a place that talks about this but we know from uh information in in second kings and also in Jeremiah chapter 52 that this guy goes to Babylon and he spends 37 years there and he's led out by a successor to Nebuchadnezzar 37 years later um, the final part of the lament so think about what he's doing here he's lamenting the fall and and at least when he gets up to this final part it hasn't happened yet um, verse 10 your mother was like a vine in the vineyard um, she's fruitful uh, the lioness has had many cubs She'll see, you know, and she was, past tense, fruitful. Uh, it was fruitful and full of branches, using the vine as an example. Common imagery, Jesus uses it in John 15. Um, it had strong branches, fit for the scepters of rulers. In other words, Israel was strong, productive. Uh, it is pictured in its strong branches, which are, you know, uh, fit for scepters of rulers. Its strong branches are the kings it's produced, and certainly in its history, it produced David and it produced Solomon. However, verse 12, it was uprooted in fury and thrown to the ground, and the east wind dried up its fruit. This east wind is symbolic in, in the Old Testament of judgment. Um, it, it's, it's a common phrase. Um, the wind normally that would bring the rains in would come... Um, from the west, you know, from the Mesopotamian, uh, but but um, uh, I think I said the wrong word. But you know, from from the, from the ocean, it would come in, and 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 from the east is the desert. And when you read the book of Jonah, 
when you when you look at the book of Jonah, when when God he thinks God's going to destroy Nineveh, Jonah sits down, and there's this harsh east wind that comes against him. He's there to watch the fireworks, and it's it's very um, dramatic with this harsh east wind coming on him, and it's it's a sign of judgment, but not not for Nineveh for of uh, the people that Jonah's a prophet to the 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 northern the northern kingdom and and so it is here this east wind is the wind of judgment and it comes off the hot desert and think about it geographically if you're in Jerusalem the east wind on the other side of the jordan it's a it's a desert right it's like saudi arabia and and it comes in off of that and it dries up the fruit and so its strength its branches have been consumed and that is what is happening in their day and will continue to happen over the next the next few years. Uh, he doesn't specifically mention Zedekiah, but, uh, you know, these strong branches raising scepters of rulers, that's going away. They're going to be at a point for, for a while with no king, no one in the Davidic line that's a king uh, because the branches have been dried up. Uh, now it's planted, verse 13. This this tree that was planted by water, verse 10, sounds like Psalm 1, um, uh, you know, a, a tree planted by the, uh, you know, the, the waters. Uh, verse 13, now this tree, Israel, is no longer planted by the water. The water was the blessing of God. Now it's a dry and thirsty land. He's, he's shut off the water supply, brought in the east wind. Fire has gone out from its main branch and devoured its fruit. It no longer has a strong branch, a scepter for ruling. It no longer has a king. And that's where he he ends the lament and, and he tells Ezekiel, this is a lament that should be used as a lament, meaning he wants the people to say this. He wants them to hear this, that um, these other kings have been taken care of and the current one that's there is going to have a similar fate. And, 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 and then there will be no kings because they'll be they'll be in captivity. Let me stop there.